Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am going to cover James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, a short audio this time. I'm going to entitle this section of Scripture, Heavenly Wisdom from Above. Our context is this, and the last part of In the first part of chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, James gave a fiery exhortation about taming the tongue. So we start now in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? He should show his works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness. Now, when James asked the question, who is wise, he's talking about who is wise spiritually. He's not talking about natural wisdom. He's not saying who is a philosopher among you, who among you knows Plato. No, he's talking about spiritual wisdom. Who is this person who is wise and has understanding among you? He should show his works by good conduct. Now, showing his works, that is a big theme, a big theme in James. As James said in chapter 2, verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you. Your, and I will show you faith from my works. So showing your faith by doing works is how you know you have faith, true justifying faith. And so James returns to that theme here and says, one way you can show that you have faith is by your good conduct, by what you do with wisdom's gentleness. Good conduct is translated in the NIV as his good life. He should show his works by his good life. Because conduct is what you do in your life. So that's a reasonable translation. With wisdom's gentleness, NIV has the humility that comes from wisdom. Wise people are generally humble. Truly spiritually wise people are genuinely humble. Now, earthly wise people, like the sort of professors that you meet in college universities, whom I associated with for over three decades, well, that's a different story. Here's what Adam Clark says about such people. Quote, those proud overbearing and disdainful men who pass for great scholars and eminent critics may have learning, but they have not wisdom, especially the ones who trash the scriptures and say the scriptures are not true or not inerrant. James 3, verses 14, 15, and 16, But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't brag and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, For where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every kind of evil. Now, when he says, if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, is he saying that the Jewish Christians that James was writing to, did they actually have bitter envy and selfish ambition in their heart? Well, John Gill thinks so. He says this is implied in the Greek indicative. In other words, it should be translated, since you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart. But actually, it, the Greek, and I'm not sure whether they knew this back in Gill's day about translation. I know that the Greek scholars always separate these if clauses in the first, second, third, and fourth class conditionals. This is a first class conditional, and the if clause is in a first class conditional is merely assumed to be true for the sake of argument, but it's not necessarily true. So what James is saying here, if it is the case, and I'm assuming that it is true for the sake of argument, but I'm not saying it actually is, that you have bitter envy in your heart. So it might be true that James's readers did not have envy in their heart. It's a small point, but James is at least allowing for the possibility that they might have envy and selfish ambition in their heart, and they, and they shouldn't. He says, if you do that, don't brag and deny the truth. And of course, that's the fruit the fruit comes from what is in the heart. 
And if you've got bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, it's going to show itself by those by evil works that spring therefrom. Bragging, bragging about how smart you are, how wise you are. John Gill says that James can be referring to the Gnostics, and he's saying don't brag like those Gnostics who say they have knowledge, and if you'll just come to them, they'll give you the knowledge that you need to save your life. Reminds me what Vadi Beecham, the Oxford-educated black reform scholar, said about ethnic Gnosticism as a new Gnosticism. Now, if you are have a certain skin color, then therefore you have knowledge about people with other skin colors, knowledge that they are racist and evil, like in critical race theory. Now, And the people who are racist, they don't know that they're racist. They don't have the knowledge, but oh yes, we who have the certain skin color, we we do know because we have the knowledge, that kind of thing, which is basically racism. So at any way, it's, and it's also arrogant. So that kind of wisdom, no matter how much it's gussied up and fancied up with academic jargon and garb is basic stupidity and it's not well it's worse than stupidity it's evil 15 such wisdom does not come from above from heaven but is earthly unspiritual and demonic above of course means it didn't come from god that's obvious it's earthly that's either it means it comes from the earth where sinful men are or it could mean that it has only this life in view i tend to take the former definition that it's it comes from men who live on the earth as opposed to God who lives in heaven. And that sort of wisdom is unspiritual and demonic. Well, we know what demonic is. Activated and inspired by demons. This kind of false knowledge. And if he was talking about Gnosticism, that's even more so, more obvious. That that kind of knowledge is demonic. But he says it's also unspiritual. Now that word is interesting. The KGV has sensual is earthly and sensual, which is a little confusing. Well, it turns out there's definitions all over the place for this word because the Greek word is sukike, which literally is soulish in English. KGV says, translates that as sensual. Adam Clark says, and Jameson Foss and Brown say, it means like an animal. In other words, an animal is soulish. I don't know how soulish means animal-like, but that's what they come up with. Here's what Clark says, quote, having for its object the gratification of the passions and animal propensities. And so like an animal, that's how King James says sensual. That's what animals do. They go by their senses. That's all they care about. They don't think too much. They just, when they're hungry, they eat. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that sukike literally means animal-like. Jameson Fawcett and Brown also says that it sukike means not born again of God, not having the spirit, because it's soulish as opposed to spiritual. Here's another place, James Foster Brown quote this place, Jude 1, verse 19, where we see sukike, or a form of it, used in this verse. These be they who separate themselves sensual, having not the spirit. So there you see, soulish means having not the spirit. That's the King James translation. The Holman Christian Study Bible translation of Jude 1, 19 says, These people create divisions and are unbelievers, not having the spirit. So you see, the English doesn't quite grab it. Now, there's not really one English word that grabs the meaning of sukike. We've got unbelievers, sensual, like an animal, unspiritual. I think unspiritual is probably as good as anything because it contrasts with God who is spiritual. At any rate, this type of know-it-all wisdom, and I'm very sensitive about this because I was around it all my life. People that get up, you ought to hear these professors. I don't care what field it's in. Get up at their academic conferences and spout off about their knowledge, about some little picking point in their field that's as tiny as a microbe. 
and has absolutely no relevance to anything. I remember one time when I was in the IT, when I was studying for a PhD in management information systems, which had a lot of computer technology in it, and there was a professor I had who was trying to tell us that not get so focused on the technology, and he said he was at a conference, and a guy gave a paper on how he had minimized access to a certain database by two, what, one hundred millionth of a second, I don't know, some minute number. And he said while he was going on and on about how he had done that and all the computer science professors were going, oh, wow, oh, cool. Finally, someone in the back of the room raised his hand. He was called on, and that person said, who gives a blip? <laughs> Which I thought was great. I still remember it. That's about all I do remember from that course of study. James continues in verse 16, chapter 3, For where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every kind of evil. Apparently, there's so much talk about envy here. People are trying to climb. I want to be the big shot in the church. Selfish ambition. Well, you know where that is. There's going to be disorder because people start climbing. Other people say, no, he ought not to climb. I want to climb. And then you end up fighting. Church politics. Nothing worse. The KGV translates selfish ambition as strife. Here's a scripture that reflects that same sentiment, Titus 3.9. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. I've got a good friend of mine, pastor of a church, one of the pastors. He got three people mad at him in one week. One of the issues was he got up in front of the church and said, we shouldn't argue over the length of long hair. One of the brothers in the church had been growing his hair out having some kind of a midlife crisis or something, wanted to go back to when he was young. He was in a rock band. And so people had been teasing him about it, but it was good-natured. And then all of a sudden, when my friend said, we ought not to argue over how long somebody's hair is, he gets upset because because he's being talked about. That's the sort of thing that's just plain stupid to argue about. Another, another thing he said in the same week was, it's good that we don't wear suits to church because it puts division between the leaders of the church and the flock which is a perfectly good sentiment. I don't like these people who go up there wearing ratty blue jeans with holes in the knees, trying to prove how cool they are. You know, they're 50 years old, and they're trying to look like they're 17. I don't like that. But on the other hand, wearing suits is a little bit too formal for me. So I thought that was a pretty nice statement. And then one of the brothers there who wore suits to church every week got upset with him because he was denouncing suits. Well, folks, if you end up arguing over whether you wear suits to church or not, or whether how long somebody's hair is, you are involved in a quote-unquote foolish debate that is unprofitable and worthless. And they have nothing to do with wisdom. Now, if you're debating something about theology, about hey, how many people are in the Trinity, or some, how many persons are in the Trinity, that's one thing. But most, let's face it, most arguments are not over these elevated issues. They're over stupid things. And usually, it's, if it's a church building, it's over stuff like the color of the carpet. Or what do we hang on the wall here? Stupid things. Now, the Jews were especially prone to strife and fighting over stuff because they studied all the time, and they and their the, the object of their study was these legalistic man-made traditions, which are stupid. How far can you walk on Saturday and that kind of stuff? Can you spit on the ground on Saturday because spitting creates a furrow, and creating a furrow is farming, and the Bible says not to work on the Sabbath. So can you spit on the Sabbath? And, I'm serious. This is the kind of stuff they argue about. And so that's easy to see how you get in fights. In fact, they had two schools that fought each other all the time. Shammai, the strict pharisaical school, and Hillel, the liberal pharisaical school. 
Here's a quote from Clark. The Jews were the most intolerant of all mankind. It was a maxim with them to kill those who would not conform to their law and their salvation they believed to be impossible. Well, you're not going to believe the law. You're not going to be saved. Might as well kill you now. That's interesting. I don't know where who Clark is quoting when he says the rabbis say that, but he's a pretty heavy hitter. I, I assume he's quoting correctly. And, of course, James is writing to Jews. He's writing to these people whose very culture is involved in arguing stuff all the time. And they probably carried it right on into the church. James calls it an evil disorder and every kind of evil. Here's another scripture about disorder. This is Paul, not James, speaking. 1 Corinthians 14:33. Since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, dot, dot, dot. God is not a God of disorder. God is totally ordered, and he wants his children to be ordered. God is a God of peace. There's nobody warring against God in heaven. He wants his children to be at peace with one and not fighting. Now, here's a good quote from John Gill. This I call this a note for those engaged in theological polemics. Now, I've been involved in such polemics, and I'm telling you, I've also been a lawyer, and I've also been a college professor, and I've seen my share of arguments. I have had better arguments amongst liberal college professors than I have had with certain Christians. Some Christians just do not know how to argue. Now, there's a reason for it, because if you're arguing over stuff in a liberal academia, you're usually arguing over something that is not of ultimate importance. Are there weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and stuff like that? But when you're arguing about stuff that affects people's salvation, the stakes are much higher, and so people tend to get a lot hotter. hotter. So I understand that. But nonetheless, you're not suppo- there are certain ways that you can or- argue that are destructive. People that like to argue for the sake of argument just to show how clever they are, and they can win a battle, an aristic battle. No, that's not how we should do. Now, John Gill is not somebody who is a theological ignoramus. He was a theological giant. I've quoted him all through my audios here. He was very theological. In fact, he was so Calvinist, some people today argue that he was a hyper-Calvinist. I don't know whether he was or not. If he was, I never quoted him along those lines. But somebody as theological as him, listen to what he says about theological polemics quote be calm in arguing for fierceness makes error a fault and truth discourtesy why should i feel another man's mistakes more than his sickness or his poverty in love i should but anger is not love nor wisdom neither therefore g-e-n-t-l-y-m-o-v-e gently move he spells it out gently move in other words when you argue in theology be careful now, I remember one time I said something about a dispensationalist and when I was teaching. I assumed the church didn't have any dispensationalists in it because it was not a dispensationalist church. But there was one woman who was, and she got all offended. I said, oh, jeez. So now, you know, I need to say my grandmama was, both of my grandmothers were dispensationalists. My mother was a dispensationalist. But I have decided not to be a dispensationalist, so please don't get offended. You know, you just have to be careful, after all. That's why I oppose uh Professor Gerstner's, Dr. Gerstner, John Gerstner's publicly calling dispensationalist heretics. I think he was wrong. Now, Gerstner was a bulldog. I got into a battle with him one time. I'll never forget. He was a theological bulldog. And we need people like that. I mean, I don't know why. I like people like that. But still, you got to be careful what you call people. And to call a dispensationalist a heretic is going too far, in my humble opinion. I've got a whole YouTube series describing what dispensationalist means, and when I finish, I say, I don't believe it. 
but I would never say a dispensationalist is a heretic. If he can quote the Nicene Creed, which a dispensationalist can, he's not a heretic. We need to be precise when we disagree with other people and keep calm about it. I had somebody, I put something that was against cessationism on my YouTube video comment. Well, somebody tell this fool dot dot dot. He called me a fool right there on my YouTube channel. I wrote him back and I said, do you always call your theological opponents a fool? Is that, do you think that's the best way that you're going to advance your position? Of course not, it's not. Now, of course, all this is not to mean that people who really are fools, not your theological opponents, but heretics, hyper-preterists, Gnostics, and those type of people. Yeah, I mean, John denounced them, Peter denounced them, Jude denounced them. Paul denounced them. Everybody denounces them. Jesus denounced the Pharisees. That's not what James is talking about. He's talking about your fellow brothers, not heretics that you're defending against, but your fellow brothers. That's who you ought to be careful with and speak gently with. Let me go back to the phrase he uses. He says, well, I'm sorry. He says it in the next two verses, so let's go there. James three seventeen and 18. But the wisdom from above is pure, then peace-loving, gentle. That's where he says it's gentle right here in verse 17. The wisdom, the good wisdom, not the earthly wisdom, but the heavenly wisdom, the wisdom from above, that means from heaven, from God, is pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy. Now, if you get into a theological argument with someone, that would be a good verse to, that you both agree on to, before you start. I remember one time I had a, a woman sent me a nice letter arguing about my complementarian position. She was a feminist, and she was very polite, and so I responded to her very politely. The next thing I do, I get an email, and she says that I had trouble in my past, in my family, and I must not have liked my mother or sisters or something. I don't remember. Something totally ad hominem and offensive, and so I said, that's it. I never responded to it. I'm not going to debate with people that, that act that way. I found out later from a brother who had dealings with her on a day-to-day -day basis that she actually had a lot of personal problems. She hated men, and unfortunately, I was a man. But anyway, you can't use ad hominem arguments against people because you attack a person, and that's not peace-loving. That's not gentle. That's not compliant. That's not seeking the good of your brother. It's not loving. It's not pure. It's not peace-loving. It's not full of mercy. It's not full of good fruits. Verse 18, James 3, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. All right, now James mentions favoritism as something that is not characteristic of the wisdom which comes from above. Why does he mention favoritism? Remember, in the first part of chapter 2, James had denounced the sin of partiality, favoritism, when the poor brother showed up in the church and you sat him down on the floor or made him stand in the back where you put the rich brother in a nice chair with a footstool, and you made distinctions among yourselves. James 2.1, my brothers, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. James said in James 2.4, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James 2.9, but if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So James has really been out of shape about favoritism. And he also says the wisdom which comes from above doesn't have hypocrisy like earthly wisdom. What, he's mentioned that actually in chapter 1, verse 22. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you hear the word and say, amen, amen, I agree with that. I agree that we shouldn't show partiality to the brothers in the church. 
But then you show partiality, well, that means that you're a hypocrite. <laughs> Everybody hates hypocrisy. Walk your talk. Simple as that. Verse 18. Now, verse 18 is a little hard to really get your hands around here, so let's, let's unpack it a little bit. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Now, the translation is a little bit different here. I'm using the Holman Christian Study Bible, and we'll do that one first. What's the fruit of righteousness? Well, what's righteousness? Righteousness is when you're declared legally righteous before God. Now, James could be talking about practical righteousness, which is a different use of the word. But let's just say he's talking about legal forensic righteousness, being declared righteous before the throne of God. There's a certain fruit that comes from that. What fruit? Well, he doesn't say, but we know it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which I'll read right now. But the fruit, this is from Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So what he's saying is when you have all that kind of fruit, that comes from being righteous, the fruit of righteousness. Righteousness, you're declared justice, just before God, righteous before God. And as a result, you have all those fruits of the Spirit. And those fruits are then sown in peace, planted like seeds. This is an agricultural metaphor. Sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Those who cultivate peace are Christians who have wisdom from above. Cultivate means to plant and get rid of the weeds. It's a farming term. They're planting peace amongst their fellow brethren. And how do they plant peace? They're planting the fruit of righteousness. They're planting the fruits of the Spirit. So when righteous acts are planted, peace is grown. Peace is cultivated. That means peace is farmed. Peace is grown like, a, like corn, like wheat. So you plant gentleness, you get peace. I'm going to go through the fruits of the Spirit and talk about planting them amongst the fellow Christians, and the result is always peace. If you plant love, you grow peace. If you plant joy in the ground, you grow peace. If you plant patience in the ground, you grow peace. Putting up with somebody who might be a little bit obnoxious. If you plant kindness in the ground, you grow peace. If you plant goodness in the ground, you grow peace. If you plant faithfulness in the ground, you grow peace. If you plant gentleness in the ground, you grow peace. If you plant self-control in the ground, you grow peace. So to summarize, your righteousness before God leads to fruit of the Spirit, and each one of those fruits of the Spirit, when planted, grows peace. So James is obviously talking about we need peace in the church here. There must have been a lot of strife, a, little, a lot of quarrels over genealogies and other stupid controversies. He wants peace. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with James chapter 3, where James exhorts to peace among the brethren. Have you ever been in strife with fellow Christians? Oh, I have. There is nothing worse. It didn't last long. For all the years I've been a Christian, most of the time I haven't had strife with other Christians. But every now and then when it happens, there is nothing worse. What is that verse? How good and pleasant it is to, to dwell with, with the brethren. The opposite of that is true. How unpleasant and how horrible it is to dwell in disorder, disharmony with the brethren. Nothing worse. So strive as far as is possible. As Paul puts it, to be at peace with all people. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes people are obnoxious. They won't forgive you. They walk out the room and they act like horses rear ends. But as far as possible on your end, try to strive for peace. It's in the Bible, and there's a reason for it. Peace comes from wisdom that comes from above, from God. You know, all this talk about tolerance and getting along with one another, that's, not, that's the fruit of godly wisdom. It's not the source of 
of godly. It's not the sort. Peace itself is not the goal that we ought to strive for. If we strive for the godly wisdom from above, the natural byproduct of that is peace. Because if you have wisdom, you can look at your brother and say, yeah, that makes sense. Or I see where he's coming from. Or And if you both go grab hold to a certain truth of the Lord, then you don't have anything to argue about it anymore. So division comes from doing it your way. Peace comes from trying to find out what heavenly wisdom is. Now, I need to say a word here about how other translations reverse the order. The Holman Christian Study Bible says that if you plant righteousness, you grow peace. But other translations say if you plant peace, you grow righteousness. For example, the NIV says, Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So that which is grown, the harvest, is righteousness, not peace. But peace was sown to produce that righteousness. And the ESV has, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So harvest of righteousness means that which is grown, the harvest, is righteousness, not peace. Well, either way, the point is made clear. You want peace and righteousness go together. Either peace produces righteousness or righteousness produces peace. Either way, don't squabble. Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with chapter 3 of James. In chapter 4, James continues with his jeremiad against quarrels and fights and divisions. And then he basically warns against worldliness in general, more specifically evil passions that Christians were apparently exhibiting. And he really gets wound up. He calls the people, you adulterous people. That ought to be interesting. We'll take that up in the next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.